Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. They made their way across the street with weapons being pointed at them. On Sunday afternoon, in broad daylight, shots were fired here, leaving one person with serious injuries and a community at its breaking point. Shock, horror. Average citizens can't endure this level of siege. We need to feel that you and I are safe where we're standing right here from a flying bullet. And yesterday afternoon, we couldn't have done this here. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. That was the report from Global News reporter Kylie Stanton on the shooting last month in Nanaimo near an encampment. The shooting victim, Clint Smith, he's the owner of a auto repair shop in Nanaimo. Many people may have seen Clint this week when he confronted the Solicitor General about the disorder and chaos in the streets of Nanaimo and so many other cities in british columbia the good news is here is that clint smith survived that shooting he's recovering and he's speaking out and i'm very pleased that he can join me right now clint thank you very much for coming on you're welcome thank you very much for having me okay clint first of all i I always want to make clear for the listeners there's a police investigation going on into this incident and i know you've been told do, do not talk about details about what happened so i'm going to respect that so but first of all let me ask how how you are doing because i know you suffered a a catastrophic injury here in this shooting how are you well um day by day it's a little bit better um the uh damage is uh pretty i mean honestly i'm 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 pretty messed up i lost uh 20 percent of my colon um there's other internal issues right now that are still ongoing um many incisions i was in a coma for five days, uh, three surgeries, uh, uh, with the support of my family and, uh, a lot of really good community members and support in, in the community. I'm, I'm recovering pretty grateful about that. It's, uh, been the hardest thing I've endured. Um, and not just physically, also mentally, yeah. uh, been rough. Yeah. I'm, I know, I know it has, I'm certain it has I, the bullets still in there, right? Yeah, they, uh, the bullet lodged uh, in a spot. Um, it actually went through my pelvic bone. Didn't shatter it, thankfully, but the uh, surgeon told me on Tuesday when I got the sutures and the uh, staples out, uh, I asked him more details because when I was in the hospital, I didn't get a lot of details, but apparently it went through my pelvic bone and is kind of lodged behind everything underneath all of my rear-end muscles sort of thing and uh, in a bad spot where... It, there's a lot of risk if they try to extract it. I know that there were there were gr- grave fears that you would not survive this shooting, and you have beaten the odds here. You have survived. You're recovering. What, what's it like to come out of a coma after five days? Can you put that into words? What is that like? Well, to be honest with you, it's hard to put into words. Um, there's a lot of bewilderment a lot of unknown like I, di- I didn't know what was going on like I, w- I had blacked out before I'd even gotten to the hospital I'd collapsed so um, pretty much from the time I collapsed to a day or two after I came out of the coma because I was heavily medicated and I was pretty messed up um, there's a giant block of complete insomnia I don't have any recollection obviously and uh, 
kind of shakes your whole world. Like you don't realize how much that situation affects you. I have the, uh, I have a family member that was in a coma for longer than I have. And I've had my sister and I've had a lot of opportunity to talk to her about it. And, and thankfully I've been able to lean on that and she's been able to provide me insight and in how to get through it. I mean, it, it really messes you up in your head yeah. and it's hard to, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to make a mountain out of a molehill, but it definitely affects you on a, a level that's not just physical. Speaking of Clint Smith, Clint is the owner of a Nanaimo auto repair shop. He was shot outside that encampment last night, last month in Nanaimo. Clint, let's talk about the situation in Nanaimo right now. Can you tell me a little bit about your business and some of the some of the problems that you've seen on the streets here of Nanaimo? Well, uh, small shop. We're fairly busy. Um, actually, we're very busy, but. Uh, uh, thankfully we have a pretty good reputation, but, uh, our physical location is right next to, a one of the, uh, three main shelters in the near downtown area. Now that particular shelter is the one that is probably run the best of the three. Um, and I regularly communication with the staff and director there, um, much respect to what they do. Um, I'm not a anti unhoused or anti marginalized person by any stretch of the imagination, even after this happened. I'm very supportive of people who are struggling. That being said, the other two shelters in Nanaimo have been nothing but a cesspool of nastiness, drug dealing, abuse, violence, thievery. Um, it's kind of been effectively nicknamed the Bermuda Triangle where I'm at because I'm kind of in close proximity to reasonably all three of those shelters. So we get a lot of transient foot uh, uh, traffic and as soon as the decriminalization of opioids and hard drugs occurred in British Columbia, actually before the actual decrim happened, but when they announced it, literally that day, the brazen attacks on businesses increased so much. Uh, I've had cars torched on my lot. I've had cars broken into my lot. I've had cars vandalized on my lot. I've slept overnight on my lot to be my own security. Um, I've put up security lights. I've contracted security security company i've had my compound of my business broken into and this was i mean i had several years with reasonable i mean once in a while you'd have an incident here and there no different than any other location uh, but since the announcement of the decriminalization of hard drugs not even the implementation but the announcement of it the brazen attacks on businesses in the, in the nanaimo area have been unbelievable and i attribute my particular situation into a case where there's a lot of things in automobiles that are able to be easily converted to drugs. I mean, you get car parts, catalytic converters, stuff stolen out of the interiors of vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. And in my case, tools and equipment are all a currency and very easily then sold or converted into drugs. And I think we are ignoring the drug crisis at its core and just trying to you know hold water um i think a lot more needs to be done to you saw people who are struggling you saw premier david eby was in town this week in nanaimo solicitor general mike farnworth was also there responding to this crisis on the streets of your city and i know many listeners clint may have seen the the moment when you went right up to the solicitor general mike farnworth and and told him how you feel Let's uh, have a listen to that, then I want to ask you about it. So here is Clint Smith earlier this week uh, confronting the Solicitor General. Let's listen. 
None of you guys, after I got shot, made a single effort to communicate with me. Do something about it. That's what we're trying to do. A whole lot less lip service and a whole lot more action that's, is required, Mike. Clint, what was going through your mind there when you decided to go down? Because I was watching some TV footage, and it looked like you were barely able to stand at some times because of the pain from this this uh, gunshot wound you have. Like I saw you, is that why you were sitting on the ground sometimes? I uh, had to sit down. I was starting to block out from pain, so I uh, my cousin Kevin had driven me down there. He helped me get down to sit on the ground. I was sitting on the ground for the uh, press conference, and then when it completed. Uh, Kevin was helping me stand back up again so that we could leave. And actually, Farnsworth walked up to me. I didn't walk up to him. I was right where I was getting up off the ground. And I wasn't going to make a scene. That wasn't my intent. I wasn't. But he walked right up to me. And I honestly, I probably reacted a lot out of emotion and uh, not a guy to bite my tongue. Yeah, let me ask you about this the situation in Nanaimo, and let me let me play a, a clip here for you from uh, after the shooting. This constable Gary O'Brien from the Nanaimo RCMP. Let's have a listen, and I'll get your thoughts. We, we understand people are really frustrated. I've never seen these situations where they end well, either for the people involved or the the quote unquote suspects. You've got to contact us. Okay, I know that we spoke yesterday on the phone, Clint, and, and I know you're a big supporter of, of the rank-and-file police officers there in Nanaimo who, are, who you told me are doing the best they can. But when you hear the, the spokesperson for the RCMP there say, call us, you need to call us, have you tried calling the police when you're, you know, your place is broken into and your tools are stolen? Uh, absolutely, and I have, I have really mixed emotions about Gary O'Brien's announcement. I, that was filmed when I was in my coma and then I was given, um, I was shown a copy of it when I was awake. Um, the rank and file RCMP officers are understaffed, overtaxed. There's tons of them that are out on stress leave and on PTSD. The supports and fundings for the, what the RCMP do, I, in my opinion, are, are, are negligent. Uh, that being said, when Gary O'Brien makes a comment like that, I take issue with it. Uh, and the reason I take issue with it isn't because he's not trying to do his job and isn't because he doesn't have a valid point. But my point is, um, countless times, I mean, I've contacted the Nanaimo RCMP over the last six, seven years, hundreds of times over issues, hundreds. I'm not exaggerating. Um, more often than not, you'll phone 911 to report something, something happening, something that is a dire situation. And unless somebody's injured or bleeding or something's on fire, the dispatch operator will tell you, well, that's not an emergency, call the non-emergency line. So then you get off the phone with that, and then you call the non-emergency line. And uh, again, probably in my experience, probably at least three-quarters of the time that I've called, you get a voicemail. And the voicemail is fairly lengthy. It tells you that if this is an emergency, call 911. If you're injured, call a hospital, go to the emergency hospital, blah, 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 or some, to that effect, I'm paraphrasing. Um, and then at the end of the voicemail, it goes and says, uh, our voicemail box is full. Please try again later. Clint, I wish you I wish you full power in your road to recovery from this catastrophic injury that you have suffered. I'm glad you survived. I'm glad that you're speaking out. Last question for you. What What is your doctor telling you about? What's your prognosis here for your recovery? Um, there's an internal problem I'm not going to talk about right now, still going on with, uh, uh, inside, um, that I'm, we're monitoring, but, uh, I'm hoping that resolves itself. 
Um, but uh, other than that, compl- potential complication, there's a real uh, solid uh, prognosis. I, I will recover. Um, I'm going to have a, a lot of uh, it's going to take a lot of physical reconditioning. I've lost all, uh, most of my abdominal muscles have been cut through. Um, so there's going to, I'm weak and, uh, don't have any stamina. It's going to take some while to build my strength back. Uh, lost 20% of my colon, but I do expect a full recovery and I do expect to return back to, uh, you know, pain-free and, and full, uh, activities, uh, within months. Okay. So I'm kind of eager to get back on my fishing kayak. I'm sure you are, Clint. Clint, thank you for talking to us today. I appreciate it, and I wish you a full and complete recovery. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Have a great day. All right, let's talk about a crucial decision of the Supreme Court of Canada now on Canada's impaired driving laws. Now, yesterday, the highest court in the land upheld the acquittal of a Quebec man who had been suspected of drunk driving, but he refused to provide a breath sample to police. Pascal Breault was then charged under the criminal code for refusing to provide a breath sample. Now, that is usually slam-dunk conviction here, but he was found not guilty. He was acquitted in court. Why? Because the police did not have a breathalyzer machine on hand for immediate use. They had to radio to other officers to bring the device to the scene. Because of that delay, the courts found this, the accused, they they acquitted him because of that. This has now been, it was appealed all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court of Canada has now ruled on this yesterday, unanimous ruling, saying the demand for the breath sample was invalid, because the police did not have an approved screening device, a breathalyzer, in their possession at the scene. Let's discuss now with my guest, Charlie Gron. Charlie is a treasurer and board member of Mothers Against Drunk Driving for Metro Vancouver, Mad Canada. Charlie, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hey, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Charlie, what do you think of this this ruling. I mean, here's a guy, police say that they believed he had been drunk driving. They said he had alcohol in his breath. He had bloodshot eyes, but he, he beats the rap here. What do you think? Well, you know, Mike, there, there seems to be a case like this every year. And every, every time there is one like this, I kind of have the same reaction. Um, you know, most of the people in our organization are victims. They've been directly impacted by impaired driving. We've lost people who, if they're not immediate family members, they're, you know, they're friends or, or uh, friends of friends. And we participate in this organization because what we're trying to do is transform the future and, and try to spare other people the loss that we've encountered. Um, when I hear news like this, my immediate reaction is, is that, you know, we've been unsuccessful or going backwards. Um, and then, and then I take it upon myself to read the decision and invariably I feel a little bit better. So, in this case, yes, it was a unanimous decision. Um, um, and I think what's important is in this instance, what the Supreme Court said, it wasn't, it wasn't the absence of the ASD or the screening device, not a breathalyzer, but the screening device um, that resulted in the acquittal. It was the delay from the right to access counsel imp- that resulted from not having the ASD on hand that resulted in the acquittal. I don't think it was... 
the decision wasn't substantively decided on the presence of the ASD. This is not something that is going to be, this isn't something that's going to frustrate police all over the country all the time. I think part of my reaction is, is an ASD, a screening device, is about, it's about the size of a pencil box. Um, uh, every police car in Vancouver has got one, for example. Um, they only weigh about 15 ounces, and they're not that costly. There's no reason the police in Quebec couldn't have had one available. So shame on them for not having one at, at hand. Yeah, I mean, when when they stopped this guy, like look, looking at some of the details of, of this case, this was a man who had been suspected of driving an ATV, an all-terrain vehicle, while impaired. Officers had stopped him while he was on foot. They said he had bloodshot eyes and smelled of alcohol. Does it surprise you that they would not have as you described, an approved screening device to collect a breath sample right there at the scene. Like, shouldn't every police police cruiser have that across the country at hand, immediate, ready to go? I I, I, th- I think it would be a logical thing to 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 have at hand. You have yeah. badge, you have gun, you have yeah. computer in the car. Why not have an ASD? Is there no yeah. room for the ASD? It seems it seems you know it seems to me like a sensible thing to require, as as the court said. Um, but, you know, going back to the decision, yeah. um, you know, the, 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 the thing that concerns me and I think concerns many members of our organization is that the courts are calling balls and strikes like we expect them to do. Um, and sometimes in cases like this, you know, the pitch is just on the corner of the plate and they could call a ball or they could call a strike. And what they do is is is. Is the they don't pander to the hometown crowd, and and I mm. think the I think the danger is that excessive you know excessively rigid approaches to safeguarding our fundamental freedoms may inadvertent you know inadvertently uh, undermine public confidence in the justice system, and and you know there's a potential for chaos. I think we see that not just in issues related to impaired driving. But as we've seen, you know, so far this year and, and last year as well, um, in many different areas uh, where the public is increasingly frustrated with the ham-fistedness of the courts to provide practical justice. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking a lot about a criminal justice system here a lot recently on the show that's been called like a, a revolving door uh, with repeat offenders being let out, of, let out of jail to commit more crimes. So, yeah, there are lots of problems here. For sure. Would you say that Canada's impaired driving laws as they exist right now, are they tough enough or does, does mad Canada want to see tougher laws? Um, you know, like I don't want to leave your listeners, Mike, with the impression everything's going to hell in the handbasket. It's not. Yeah. I, yeah. I am very encouraged about the future. Um, you know, 13 years ago, BC brought in administrative penalties for impaired driving. Um, yeah. Because he was having difficulties pursuing criminal convictions in the courts, it was just it was it was long and costly, and 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 the sentences just were very tepid. Um, and you know, we what we noticed after administrative penalties were brought in, there was a very aggressive and sustained reduction in impaired driving deaths in this province. There used to be up until September 2010, there used to be reliably 120 deaths on BC highways every year. Uh, these days, it's less than 60, okay? Oh, and yeah. and I, I, I ascribe that to 
the introduction of administrative penalties that give police officers the 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 the, the opportunity for practical enforcement by imposing um, you know uh, thirty and sixty day uh, driver's license suspensions and right. and you know so so I'm I'm very happy with the laws and the tools that we have given our police officers. Um, we are making good progress. The, you know, the biggest thing is the attitudes of residents and motorists. And as I'm fond of saying, you know, 95% of the public makes the right decision 99% of the time. And that's been the most important thing. Um, and we've got progressive uh, driver's licensing for novice drivers where there's zero tolerance for the presence of alcohol while they're, while they're a, a, a new driver. Um, and, uh, and, you know, just generally the younger people I meet in the course of representing MAD, I'm really impressed with them and their community focus and their care and, you know, their care for each other. Um, so, um, you know, the overall trajectory I think is very positive. Um, but that's no consolation to the 50 families I know this year in BC that are, that are going to learn that, you know, a, a loved one has passed at the, at the hands of an impaired driver. Speaking of Charlie Gron from MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Charlie, while I have you here, let me ask you about and measures in the United States here. Should new motor vehicles be equipped with impaired driving detection technology? And this is this technology is really something that you can equip cars to automatically tests the breath of a driver and if the driver has alcohol on his breath his or her breath the car would not be able to start should that be the law here in canada as well let's listen to this report from cbs news on this topic then i'll get your thoughts let's listen Robert Strausberger leads a group of over a dozen top car makers joining forces with Mothers Against Drunk Driving to back the Driver Alcohol Detection System for Safety, or DADS. Verify me. Warning. Alcohol detected. Here's how it works. The sensor can detect the blood alcohol content on your breath all in the matter of seconds. If it's above the legal limit, 0.08, the ignition won't turn. Charlie Gron, what do you think of that system and that technology? Should that be the law in Canada? Well, Mike, there's there's a lot of different technologies the, uh, that are in the marketplace. Um, where where that story is coming from is it's a result of a law that was passed in the United States in September of 2021 that that authorized the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration in the United States to work with auto manufacturers to ensure that there was some disabling technology in cars by 2026 um, that detected when the driver was uh, impaired through drugs or alcohol. Um, Which specific technology is going to be in place for 2026 is something that will be determined by NHTSA um, at some point in the future. Our organization has worked very closely with our counterparts um, in the United States to see um, that legislation enacted. And, and we, we've had conversations with them continuously. And in fact, um, somebody representing uh, the person who spearheaded uh, that effort for MAD in the United States um, uh, spoke at our national leadership conference in Toronto in November. Um, I know that people uh, with our national office have met with the federal minister of transportation. I expect Canada will follow suit probably by introducing legislation this fall. 
Wow. Okay. And if that happens, what would be the what would be the effect of that potentially? That all new vehicles in Canada could potentially be required to have this technology installed. Is they, that right? They, they they would have some form of technology that would determine when the driver was impaired. That in, that oh. could that it could encounter that that could encompass um, uh, drugs and alcohol plus sleepiness uh, fatigue. Wow. Uh, and uh, basically what, what, what we want to do is we want to take the same technology that allows driverless cars to navigate a hailstorm in Iowa in traffic. We want to turn that on in the, on the inside and, and, and allow, uh, allow it to alert uh, uh, or to, to, first of all, alert adjacent motorists that a driver uh, is uh, either fatigued or impaired by some time. It could be a medical issue as well. Um, and then, uh, you know, pr- probably the way it would work is after after some period of time of with the hazard lights or something like going that the, the vehicle would gradually slow down. Um, wow. But but those those are things that will be determined by industry and with regulators. Um, but I'm I'm very encouraged that that legislation will make its way to to uh, to Canada later this year. And then it'll it'll be it'll be popular throughout the world shortly thereafter, I imagine. Okay, well, we're, we're watching to see if that happens. Charlie, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you, Mike. Okay, let's continue talking about this key decision by the Supreme Court of Canada on the country's impaired driving laws, the highest court in the land yesterday. Unanimous ruling here by the Supreme Court. They uphold the acquittal of a Quebec man who had refused to provide a breath sample to police officers in an impaired driving case. Kyla Lee is my guest, traffic lawyer at Acumen Law. Kyla, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Can, can you explain, like, I was, I was listening to some of your comments on social media yesterday. You believe this is a, a crucial ruling by the Supreme Court, right? This is a crucial ruling. There was um, conflict in how the law was being interpreted between different provinces, and this clarifies if the police aren't in a position to conduct the test right away when they ask you to blow, they don't have the right to ask you to blow without providing you with the opportunity to contact a lawyer first. Okay, how how common is that, though? Like, if you're stopped and a police officer asks for a, a breath sample... How come don't they usually have a breathalyzer? They got they got it ready to go right there. No, I, you would think really? that they would spend the money to put breathalyzers in every police car because it makes sense. But no, many, many police officers are not equipped with breathalyzers and people are made to wait um, standing at the roadside for 10, 15, 20 minutes. Very commonly waiting for a breathalyzer to be brought to the scene. Right. OK, that's kind of surprising because I thought there would be one almost in every vehicle, every police vehicle. But they're not that expensive. It's about $350 each. So, you know, if you think about the cost versus the potential cost to society if somebody continues down the road and causes an accident, um, it, it makes sense to spend the money. Okay, what is wrong with making a driver wait? Like if a police officer believes that a driver is impaired and a, and a danger to other, other motorists, and if you have to wait 10 minutes for a breathalyzer to be brought to the scene for a breath, t- breath sample, what's wrong with that? The problem with that is that breathalyzer testing is done when you don't have the opportunity to contact a lawyer. It's one of the very few circumstances where you're mandatorily required to comply with a search without the benefit of legal advice. And that justification on your right to counsel is unconstitutional, but it's saved because the test is done immediately. So immediacy is crucial to the actual breathalyzer law being valid in Canada. 
Right. And as I understand this ruling by the Supreme Court, I mean, they were looking at the criminal code and the criminal code. You correct me if I'm wrong here, Kyla, but it says that when a police officer demands demands a, a breath sample of, in a suspicion of drunk driving, the, the sample is to be collected forthwith. Right. Is that the is that the word in under the law? Forth forthwith. That's the word that was used up until December 2018. Parliament changed the word to now to say immediately. So immediately. OK. <laughs> So now it's very clear. It has to be right away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's pre- that's not a very ambiguous word at all. I mean, immediate means, you know, right away. You can't you can't wait. What do you think will be just a minute left here? What do you think will be the the impact or the result of this ruling? Do you think more police forces now will be buying more breathalyzers? So every every police cruiser has one on hand. I would hope that that's the impact of the ruling, not only for public safety reasons, but also for charter compliance reasons. I also think that we will see an impact in this uh, as a result of this ruling in a number of cases that are sort of working their way through the courts pending this being dismissed. So this will cost uh, in the short term, but hopefully the police correct it. Okay, following it closely. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right, let's talk motorcycle safety now. Yeah, get your engine running. It's that time of year. You know, the weather starts to get nicer. Looks like we got a lot of rain coming in this next few days, but weather starts to get nicer in the spring. A lot of people who ride motorcycles, okay, time to get on the bike. You get the bike motorcycle out of the garage, let's hit the road. Okay, so we've got to talk about motorcycle safety, though, because when you compare how many people are riding motorcycles as a percentage of all the users of the road, then you compare that to the accident rate. Well, motorcycles, yeah, they do have a higher percentage of people involved in roadway fatalities, very sadly. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Ron Cronk. Ron is a motorcycle instructor, Vancouver Island Safety Council. Very pleased to welcome him. Hey, Ron. Hey, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me today. You bet. Thanks a lot for coming on. Ron, how long have you been riding a motorcycle? Oh, 30 years, I'm going to guess. 30 years. Okay, I love it. All right, so tell me a little bit about Vancouver Island Safety Council. What do you guys do there? Well, we are the largest uh, motor, uh, certified um, motorcycle uh, training school on Vancouver Island. Um, we run an extensive uh, schedule of courses, and we take everybody from beginners uh, to those who've been away for a while and want to uh, refresh their skills and those who want to uh, take it to an advanced level. Okay, this is the time of year, right, when a lot of people are getting their bikes out of the garage. And what is the message you want to get out to the public here as we see more motorcycles on the road? Well, I think for those people, for the motorcyclists, I think they just need to get out and practice a little bit. Um, It's a bit of a perishable skill set, and if you don't use it, you tend to lose it. Um, But to the motorists out there looking and driving every day, we are going to be more and more uh, prevalent out on the roads. And you're going to have to really take a look because... Uh, the collisions that uh, happen between motorcycles, the, the vehicle always says, I just didn't see them. And so they really do need to have a look because, uh, you know, we're out there. And if you're not looking, you're not doing shoulder checks, uh, yeah. we don't want to be involved. Yeah, like if you're going to change lanes, right, you got to make sure you look over your shoulder. Just check if anybody's there. Absolutely. And the motorcyclist has a responsibility to be seen and be in a position where those vehicles, when they're doing their checks, can see you actually. 
Yeah, for sure. For sure. When it comes to uh, accident rates on the on the road with motorcycles, can you talk talk a little bit about that? Because I believe motorcyclists make up around what about three point five percent of the insured vehicles on the road, according to ICBC, right? But they account for more than that when it comes to accidents, right? Especially it's fatal, including fatal accidents. Clear. Yeah, we're, uh, motorcyclists are overrepresented in uh, the category of uh, serious and fatal injury motor vehicle act. I'm just just running off the top of my head. ICBC has these kind of statistics. And primarily these collisions uh, uh, occur uh, two ways. One, it's kind of a a lone motorcycle um, kind of going off-road from the roadway and and finding a tree or something like that. But probably the more serious of them are those that come into the intersections. That's where the predominantly these uh, collisions are occurring and to take it a step farther it's those left turn vehicles that are coming out in front of you what about uh, young young motorcycle riders i'm thinking like young guys who get a, their bike a bike for the first time and you know i always find that a little a worrisome for yourself as an instructor when you're dealing with someone who's brand new let's say a young guy is just starting out and getting a, getting the first bike do you do they tend to be a bit bit more a risk taker well, I think when we look at the statistics uh, as far as motorcycle fatalities, the BC Coroner's report uh, was published about three or four years ago, and there was kind of two groups. Interestingly enough, 92% of all motorcycle fatalities and serious injury uh, was a male operator. Um, there was a segment of the group that were, I think it was about uh, 20 to 30 years old that had a spike and then there was a big gap and then it came back again at about uh, 40 years old to 70 years old so it was all those old times and jump back into the game and think, i still got my class six so i'm going to go buy a, a big expensive motorcycle and mm. realizing they didn't know what they didn't know so with these young people we started from the basics like explaining to the motorcycle explaining their functions uh, and getting them to work slow. You've got to ride slow before you can ride fast. And most of the people like to skip that page because riding fast is way easier than riding slow. So mm. we hold them off. We work on a, a progressive basis from the beginning and then the next layer, the next layer, the next layer. And uh, bring into it, it's not one thing to know how to ride the motorcycle, but it's also another to have that situational awareness when you're putting the motorcycle on the road and how you're going to operate it that way as well. So there's a lot to know. And sometimes taking the easy way isn't the, isn't uh, the safest way. Speaking of motorcycle instructor, Ron Kronk. Hey Ron, let me ask you about a a story you're familiar with here. Let me play a clip here for you from Czech news in Victoria. Now this is the story of, uh, the motorcyclists who are uploading these dangerous videos to social media, guys who are like tearing down the highway, super high speed, doing wheelies on the highway, lane sp- splitting, okay? So going in between cars at high speed this is crazy, crazy stuff. And I know you've got some thoughts on it. Let's play this clip here. This is from Czech News in Victoria. Let's listen. Up to 300 kilometers an hour. At least three motorcycles dangerously weaving through traffic on the Pat Bay Highway Monday evening. The videos posted to TikTok. It's a disregard for everyone's safety, and it's only a matter of time, unfortunately, that someone's going to get seriously injured or killed. The reckless driving prompting over a dozen 911 calls. Okay, so thankfully that doesn't happen 
a lot or or does it ron are you seeing more kind of risky motorcycle behavior as guys like upload these videos to TikTok. You have to rely on law enforcement to nip that in the bud. And I think uh, in a lot of cases it does. And it usually comes with it a lot of heavy fines. These people are a disgrace to the motorcycle community, quite honestly. Um, They're putting themselves at risk. They're putting the other motorists at risk. It never will end well. So when we have the opportunity to make reports like that, the police take it seriously and they should be following up. Um, Yeah, it's, it's not right. So are we seeing more of it? Well, we certainly see a few events of it uh, year in, year out. But uh, when the police get on the other end of it, I think that uh, it puts an end to it fairly quickly. Yeah, yeah, that's good to know. I think the police should throw the book at those guys for for sure. The judge should. Let me ask you about another one. This one's really interesting to me. I got a buddy of mine who rides a Harley. And he said one of the reasons that he likes having a, a Harley Davidson is because it's a louder bike than some of the other choices out there. And he believes that if your bike is louder, the driver can see you coming or they hear you coming and it's safer. So I'm sure you've heard that expression, loud pipes save lives. And I've heard, I've heard arguments on both sides of this. Now let, let's listen to let's listen to this. Now here's a this is a guy who rides a loud bike and he says, "Look, this this saves my this has saved my life because my motorcycle is loud." Have a listen, then we'll get your thoughts. I know loud pipes off because I got cut off on the freeway last week. A woman riding along next to me in the right lane. I wrapped the pipes and that made her jump up and look, and then she moved back over. She wouldn't, didn't even know I was there until I flipped my throttle. This isn't an obnoxious sounding bike, but. I can make it bark if I want to, and I think most people think that, that loud pipes save lives. The argument is, how loud is loud? I can sympathize with people that think bikes are too loud. Yeah, I, I can understand some people think some of these bikes are too loud, but Ron, I mean, this has been a debate that's been around a long time. A long time. What do you think on this one? Loud pipes, do loud it pipes has, save lives? Know, I mean, that has, been a, that has been a debate for a long time, and, and uh, to say uh, I'm a Harley rider too, and I have a couple other bikes, um, I don't know that solely relying on loud pipes to save your life is enough. I think that um, if I use that other person's example of a car coming across, was he in the right lane position to be seen? Did he realize that he may have been riding in the blind spot of that car that wanted to move over? You know, all of these other factors that we don't know about other than simply relying on the strength of a nice loud exhaust pipe to save your life and everything else we can put on hold. I don't particularly agree that with that. I also yeah. know that the noise is projected behind the motorcycle. And we all know in our riding in our day-to-day or, or in our cars, if you hear a siren, sometimes you have to figure out where that's coming from. And it takes a second or two to figure out directly where that siren's coming from. I think if you took the same time, a uh, car, it, it's too late. So I don't yeah. think solely loud pipes are going to save your life. I think being a safe and conscientious rider with some situational awareness about how you're riding your motorcycle will make a bigger difference. Okay, I certainly agree with you there, Ron. Keep up the great work there at Vancouver Island Safety Council, and thanks a lot for coming on today. I appreciate it. Steve, thanks for my, very much. Uh, call me anytime. Talking motorcycle safety, lots of calls. Steve in Surrey. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to give you a couple comments. Um, I've had my class six, six since 1976, 
I have 10 street bikes in my garage, so I'm kind of into it. Um, I will say that loud pipes save lives is a bunch of BS. Um, the key to being safe is to realizing that you are literally invisible to the average car driver and you will not survive if you don't keep that in the back of your mind. Um, secondly, I will say that observing new riders, they are not, unless they go to a proper school like your previous guest has, which I highly recommend they don't have the bare very even basics on how to operate a, a street motorcycle um the key the one key to actually changing direction is a term that you probably have never heard it's called counter steer and it's the unique method by which motorcyclists over 10 miles an hour and you can do this on a bicycle too actually turn counterintuitive to where you turn uh, normally uh, in other words if you want to turn left on a street bike you you steer right, <laughs> and it's got everything to do with the, the fact that your two wheels are, in fact, tops. And if you spin a top, you'll see how it doesn't want to change direction. Um, okay. And I, I recommend that you Google the term counter steer, and you'll understand the very basics of what many new riders are not picking up on. Thank you, Steve, for the call. I hope you stay safe out there. And, uh, yeah, the, the loud pipes thing are interesting. I've heard uh, both sides of it. It's interesting to get your perspective on it. Peter in Burnaby. Hi, Peter. What do you think? Yeah, hello. I, I totally concur with what Steve just said. I've been riding for 50 years. I'm currently, I currently have four machines on the road. Um, there's no empirical evidence whatsoever that loud pipes save lives. What you hear, like that, uh, that thing you pulled up off of YouTube, is just anecdotal yeah. evidence. Yeah. Period. There's no yeah, empirical evidence whatsoever. What they do is they alienate other people that you share the road with because they're obnoxious. And I think the people yeah. that uh, that enjoy their loud pipes are just being selfish, attention whores, and they're they're, <laughs> they're using this safety thing uh, as just to rationalize their choice to annoy other people on the road. Thank you, Peter. Let's go to Kev- Kevin in North Delta. Hi, Kevin. Go ahead. Hey, hey, Mike. I've been. I'm 49. I've been riding since I was 16. I used to. I work out at UBC and absolutely loved, you know, riding down Marine Drive in the morning. I didn't. I rode year round. Didn't have a car till I was 25. And uh, once my kids were born, I stopped riding to work. I put collector's plates on my old Yamaha and just bomb around on the weekends because they're just too. They like, like they say, that you're invisible. They don't see you. Every time I'm coming over the Alex Fraser Bridge. We, I, I'd have a close call at least once a week, and I was just like, this is nuts. Oh. I'll just keep it on the road for the weekends. And it's really too bad because, you know, I really enjoyed riding to work. Yeah. You ever had an accident? Uh, no, no. Oh, that's good. That's good to hear. Thank you, Kevin. I'm glad you've had a, a, a long, safe uh, career of riding. John in Kelowna. Hey, John, go ahead. Hey, good morning. Yeah, I've been riding some 50 years as well and i've had two crashes where people have turned left in front of me the first one in the early 80s was an out-of-body experience for me but the thing is you know as a motorist uh, if the motorcycle didn't have a slightly louder pipe and me being very very aware of motorcycles i love these creatures these beautiful machines but if i didn't hear that bike in my blind spot i might have changed lanes and, and crumpled them and one other thing i like to say i like the way the bicycles have this red flashing light on the back of the helmet so i've recently attached the red flashing light to the back of my street bike helmet gets the number one cause of motorcycle deaths in the United States under their statistics. None are available in Canada for statistics. It is being rear-ended while you're waiting at a stop sign or a stoplight. Oh. So that's my point of view on things that are um, 
important to me. I want to stay alive again. A third time, not so lucky, maybe. Yeah, I don't blame. I don't blame you, John. Thank you very much for that. That's an interesting point about the the light on the helmet, Kevin in North Van. Kevin, you got thirty seconds here. Go ahead. Hey, Michael. Yeah, I uh, I think the over loud pipes is a little overrated, but it is a useful tool in the toolbox that I've used as a motorcycle rider for you know forty years now. Where if I'm beside a car and they start to change lanes into my lane, two things are going to happen. I've left enough space in front of me to accelerate out of the way, and that acceleration of the noise has also made the driver aware. So it can be a tool, a useful tool sometimes, but yeah, the bikes that are way too loud and excessive, that that has to be dealt with in a different matter, right? Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.